Um, Christian speaking about sex and pornography. Very frankly and very honestly about uh, problems they faced, struggles they had. Let me read you a few uh, bits and bobs from that article. He said this, he said, Porn says that you are God. You are to be worshipped. Unlike the life the real God has for you, porn offers a world where there is no risk, no failure, no weeds to contend with. Porn is the consumption of image bearers. It's vicarious enjoyment of the suffering of others. In a perverse way, porn looks like a backdoor into Eden where you are placed on God's throne. He continues, he says, I hid my addiction from everyone for many years. I lived a double life. There was a person everyone knew, responsible family man, friendly, natural leader, lover of jazz and growing roses. And then there was the secret life. Mr. Hyde, selfish, impatient, prone to rage. But then he said this, and this is what made me stop and think. He said, the next time you are sitting in a church pew, look to your left and to your right. If you do not have a serious problem with porn, then statistically one or both of those sitting next to you does. He says, I believe the biggest thing we as the church can do to help one another is to be open, to be a safe place for truth. I had no safe place and had to slog it out alone. I had no older men who had been where I was to mentor me in this area, so I gave up fighting. For many years, my addiction grew in the dark. Pride often stops members of Christ's body from being used by him. Don't be afraid of being vulnerable and sharing your own testimony. I make no apologies for starting off our time this morning like that. You might have found it slightly awkward. But you will be as aware as I am that we live in a sex-obsessed society. A society where pornographic material is just a couple of clicks away on the computer. An app on your phone. A channel hop on the TV. Five minutes walking to the newsagent. Sex is a commodity, something to be pursued, consumed. In fact, there was a TV programme recently... If you saw it, based in Oxford, of all places, looking at the damaging effect that that pornography is having on our teenagers. I wonder if society more generally is beginning to see that it is not good. The church has said for a while that we will reap the consequences of this kind of society. And I wonder if people are beginning to agree with it. The reason it's relevant this morning is because Paul is wanting the Ephesian church to live differently. He is wanting them to put off the old, to put on the new, to clothe themselves with Christ, to follow the example of Jesus. We saw verses 1 and 2, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And then the first arena that he hones in on is sexual immorality. That is the place he goes. Before we get there, a brief refresher as to where we've been in Ephesians so far. 
In broad brushstrokes, we have seen the letter to the Ephesians is a book about reconciliation. It's the work that Jesus did on the cross. It's the Trinitarian work of reconciliation. God the Father, he, he, he plans. God the Son, who secures. And God the Spirit, who seals. And we saw that we are naturally at war with God. And through the cross, we have been reconciled together under him. The dividing wall of hostility has been removed. There's a diverse community, but united in Christ. That's why it's such an encouragement at Magdalen Road, in some senses, to see such diversity. People from different backgrounds and skin colours and languages, and, but united around the gospel. And Paul says we are both a display of God's wisdom to the cosmos. We see the gospel at work, lived out, in action. Real people, really reconciled. But as well as that, it's a glimpse of where it's all going, because it will be one day all united under Christ, 1 verse 10. And the church is just a glimpse of that, the trailer of the reality to come. God is working everything out in conformity with the purpose of his will, and that is the direction, that is the goal. And therefore, unity is a really important thing to Paul in this letter. Because when we split off into factions and cliques, and when we just hung around with people like us, then it says... Well, Jesus' work on the cross isn't that important. When we create disunity and discord, we undo the work of Christ. And so Paul says, you have a unity. Keep it. Keep the peace, love, patience, mercy, kindness. You have this unity and it's growing because you are a reconciled people, reconciled around the gospel, under God's words. And as that is opened up, do you remember 4 verse 11, those word ministries? As the word does its work, so we are growing in unity and maturity. We are being transformed, changed. Changed to be more like him. To live more of this life of love. And that is where we are now. That's where we are in Ephesians. Paul is getting down to the nitty-gritty of Christian maturity, of transformation, the reality of living day-to-day for Jesus, what this looks like for you tomorrow. And he seems to look outside at how we, the church, how Christians relate to the world, and then he looks inside in our passage for this morning. And so 1 to 7 seems specifically to do with, with sex, 8 to 16 is more generally how we live as light in a dark world. And then 17 to 21, thank you Clemens for including 21, I think that's important. How we relate to one another, specifically what a spirit-filled church looks like. The kind of stuff we should expect to go on. So first point then, verse 1 to 7. Paul says, don't join in the idolatry of sex but rather love selflessly. And when our culture threw off the shackles of repression and grasped after sexual freedom, it turns out we're left even more enslaved and confused and damaged. But I don't think Paul would have batted an eyelid their prevailing sex culture 
will have been just as permissive as ours, not as shiny and glamorous and photoshopped, but just as permissive, just as tolerant, just as broad-minded. Do you remember in Ephesus there was a big temple in the centre, a temple of Artemis. And I think the temple would have set the tone for the city. There would have been various sexual orgies going on. Artemis, or Diana as she was known, was in part the goddess of fertility and So various acts would be performed to worship her. And imagine you're a Christian coming from that kind of a background. Your closet is full of skeletons. You weren't just looking in on it, you were a part of it. That was you. The temple fertility cults was you. And then the gospel brings you life. Or imagine here in East Oxford. Imagine the Lord gloriously brings one of the many local prostitutes to faith. Someone who for years and decades and perhaps generations has been caught up in that kind of an industry. Or even just imagine with someone with a sexual history. How are they to now live? What does life look like for them as part of the Christian community? Well, what about you? Living in the kind of culture that we live in. A culture that all around us shouts about sex in the office or on the internet or watching TV or walking past billboards. What does putting off and putting on look like for you? For me? Let's stop pretending. This isn't theory. Whatever our age or background or culture or marital status, this is live. There will be some in this room this morning who are utterly enslaved to it. This is relevant and real. What does it mean to live for Christ in that kind of a society? Well, Paul says what we do and what we say matter. So what we do, verse 3, he says, but among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. By sexual immorality and impurity, he's talking about using sex in a way that God did not intend. That is outside of the context for which he invented it. That is marriage. I think the greed there in verse 3 is tied in as well because I think it's a sexual lust for more. It's, it's the insatiable, never satisfies, needing another conquest, another experience, a little bit further. There was a similar thing last time in chapter 4. Do you remember verse 19, having lost all sensitivity? They've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. And they're full of greed. And it's not even a hint. 
Not even a hint. There's no flirting with it or toying over it or kind of massaging it and just trying to keep it with us. No, no, get rid. In this context here, it is all outlawed. That behaviour does not live here. We'll see next time where it does live, and that's in marriage. But for here, it's not even a hint. So obviously what we do matters. But it's more than that as well, it's how we speak. The words we use, talking about such things. So verse 4, obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking. It's the suggestive comments, sniggering over the rude joke, crude language, wanting details of other people's wrongdoing, just to be in the know. No, no, for God's new, reconciled, distinctive family, these things just don't belong. There is no room for them, Paul says. Our words can give us away. I think that's why verse 4 is there. Our words, our mouth can be a window into our hearts to what's really going on, what we're really like. What we say matters. Words have power. Nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking. I suspect the what we say challenge particularly important for us men. I think that's more our culture. Therefore, we stop. They don't belong here. To to couch it in Ephesians 2 language from those weeks ago, those are our dead in transgressions and sins life. That was our gratifying the cravings of our sinful flesh life, our by nature objects of wrath life. That's gone. Because it's by grace you've been saved. You're seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Be who you are. Put on the new. Because verse 3, they are improper for God's holy people. Verse 4, do you see they are out of place? Verse 5, of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Verse 5 is striking, isn't it? How does Paul describe them when you get to the very heart of the matter? What's the real issue? Those people are idolaters. They love something else more than God. They love selfish sex. They love themselves more than they love Jesus. It's tragic as I look down the years from my life, I can think of many people who seem to have started really well in the Christian life and then for whatever reason they they get together with a non-Christian boyfriend or girlfriend and they bow to the pressure and they start having sex with them and they choose sex over Jesus and they seem to be gone. What initially for them was a lifestyle choice they find they are enslaved to. 
They're idolaters, Paul says. And so we need verses 1 and 2. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. Live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Don't indulge in selfish, me-centred, greedy, sex-worshipping, idolatrous love. Remember the gospel. Remember how much God loves you. Remember who you are. Live a life of love. Just as Christ did. It's very contemporary stuff. Maybe you're a new student and you're just kind of getting to grips with sort of student culture that you've been propelled into. Perhaps you're tempted to dabble. Perhaps you have. And verse 6, look at what happens afterwards, the empty words that seem to follow. I, I think the train of thought is that these are the excuses. So we say, but no one gets hurt. We say, but it's love, but God gave me these desires. But I know your standard is, is high, but that's just too high for me. They are empty words. One writer said this. Casual sex is a parody of the real thing, like drinking from a muddy stream instead of fresh, clear water. He continues, those who relentlessly pursue new experiences regularly end up bitter and disappointed. The emotional electricity or even the danger of an illicit or casual relationship may be exciting, but the excitement is of the same sort as you would get from a drug like cocaine or heroin. It promises the earth and ends up killing you. If not physically, then certainly emotionally. Paul is very uncompromising. It's just not appropriate, he says. You wonder as the temperature rises in our culture, in our society, whether more and more and more we will be pressured to conform, to speak and to think as the world does. But I wonder as well whether, to some extent, the disastrous fallout from this open-mindedness, the, the results of that kind of living, will mean that the lifestyle in these verses will become increasingly attractive. Actually, as people see the wisdom in having sex in the context that God made for it, you wonder whether society increasingly will be wanting to, to reaffirm Christian sexual ethics. There'll be a funny tension going on as, as the years roll on. Pornography is, is a case in point. People are beginning to see but it's not just harmless fun. There are damaging results. Next generation are suffering. People's expectations of sex are dramatically changed. Brains are, are literally becoming rewired in different ways. People are becoming horribly addicted. Lives are being ruined. 
So I want to say, run from the old self. Put on the new self. Live a life of love. Stop it. If you struggle, and let's not pretend, many will, men, women, the stats would say many of us do in this room, I want to urge you to do something about it this week. That will mean being brave. That will mean telling somebody, someone you love and you trust. That might mean getting rid of your computer. That might mean downloading accountability software. That might mean stopping channel surfing. Stopping going to that shop. That is not you anymore. So I'd urge you to stop. Be brave. Talk to someone this week. So first point, longest point, most awkward point, verses 1 to 7. Don't join in the idolatry of sex, but rather love selflessly. Next one, verse 8 to 16. Don't join in with the world's sin, but rather expose its emptiness. So how are we to react to the world around us? I think actually we're slightly still in the sexual arena, primarily in these verses, but clearly it's got wider implications than that. I think there's a key word in verses 11 and 13 as to how we are to react to the world, and that word is expose. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Verse 13, everything exposed by the light becomes visible. And by exposing, we're not talking about smutty tabloid gossips. We're not news of the world, headline with photos, the Hollywood star who's been exposed, the overpaid footballer who's been exposed. No, it's not that kind of exposing, because verse 12 says, it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. So how do you expose something that it's shameful even to mention? How does that work? Have a look at the, um, the light and the dark words in these verses. I take it you expose something by shining the light of your transformed life upon it. So verse 8, you were once darkness. Verse 11, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. That is the darkness that you were like. I don't have anything to do with it anymore. However tempting it might be, there's no toying with it. There's no looking back through the keyhole. You're not darkness people anymore. You are light people now. And so again, verse 8. Now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Verse 9. The fruit of light is goodness, righteousness, truth. Verse 13. Everything exposed by the light becomes visible. Everything that's illuminated becomes a light. And we say, what's going on? Have a think of it like this. Imagine with me, Tanya, the technology teacher. She loves teaching, it's brilliant. She adores her job. 
She gets on really well with her pupils. She gets on well with the management. She gets on well with other staff. But if she's honest, she can find the staff room pretty difficult. It can be awkward. It's awkward because of the gossip that goes on, the, the sordid details about who did what, where, when over the weekend. And you see, Tanya used to be a gossip. She was a gossip before she started following Jesus. And she feels this temptation, this pull back to what she used to be. Now she refuses to get involved. Now she refuses to listen. And actually to the extent that a couple of her colleagues have started to ask questions. Bob, the biology teacher, and Arthur, the art teacher. They've noticed. And they're having second thoughts too. What? Well, she, she used to join in, but she doesn't anymore. And they're feeling convicted. So they've started to ask Tanya about her new Christian faith. Why have you changed so much? What's different now? Why won't you get involved as you used to? In fact, they said they might quite like to come along to this Christianity Explored thing on a Monday night on Essex Street at half past seven. Because we can see that it's making a difference to you and how you live. You've committed your life to Jesus, and so we're interested. And do you know, Bob and Arthur become Christians too. So you see, Tracy was darkness, but now her changed life is exposing their darkness. And they too have become light. How do you get rid of darkness? You bring in light. I think that's what's going on here. That's why in verse 14, the quote there, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. People aren't really sure as to where that quotation comes from. It's probably an early Christian chorus. But it's clear what it means. It means that Bob the biology teacher and Arthur the art teacher were asleep. They were dead spiritually. But now Christ has shone into them. And they're awake and alive. And the temptation is that we would just want to blend in. We'll just want to be the same as everybody else, not to kick up a fuss. Or the temptation is that we will want to separate ourselves off and just have nothing to do with the darkness. But the challenge is that we will be light in the darkness. We will be exposers as we're different to live as children of light in the Lord. And so, verse 15, to live carefully. To live wisely. Verse 16, to make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. I wonder, as you intentionally rub shoulders with neighbours and colleagues and friends and course mates and teammates and the sorts of people who fill your week, how might you expose darkness, futile living? What does that look like for you? Because I think we're meant to work these things out. Verse 10, find out... What pleases the Lord? Paul's giving us homework. 
Verse 17, we're to understand what the Lord's will is. What does that look like for you in your week? Maybe it's making a stand and just saying, no, I I can't be involved in that. Maybe it's in the culture of half-truths, being completely honest with how we speak. Maybe it's not looking at that stuff anymore. Maybe it's how you treat others. It's the language you use. It's not flirting with people. Maybe it's simply exposing the futility of the world's way by living a pure and fulfilled life. But Paul says, find out what pleases the Lord. He says the ball is in our court now. Think, pray, action. You won't just slip into light living when you're immersed in a culture of darkness. It's the kind of thing you could chat through at home group, pray about, encourage each other. Maybe it's the kind of thing to meet with a friend over coffee to talk and pray together. So don't join in with the world's sin, but rather expose its emptiness. Third one, 17 to 21, don't be foolish about how you live, but rather live the spirit-filled life. Do you want to know what God's will is for your life? God's will for your life. He wants you to be filled by the Spirit. That is his will for your life. And whilst much of verse 3 to 16 go back to the negatives, if you like, the reminders of going back to darkness and death, from 17 onwards, here is the call to be different, to be filled. Here is what the new you looks like, positively. And verse 18 then, rather than getting drunk on alcohol, being led by drunken urges and decisions, we're to be led by him, by the Spirit. Filled and led. How many people look back on a night out, having had too much to drink, and regret it? Regret what they've done, especially, perhaps particularly with the verse 3 to 7 type stuff. They've compromised sexually because they've had too much alcohol. Paul says, don't be filled by wine. Be filled by his spirit, the Holy Spirit. Now in Ephesians, if you've been here week on week, we've seen that the Holy Spirit fills God's people. We saw at the end of chapter 2, he fills the temple. Jew and Gentile united, a holy temple being built together in the Lord. We saw at the end of our our first section, 1 verse 13 to 14, he indwells Christians. A deposit, a mark, a seal. And so I think the idea here of being filled with the Spirit or filled by the Spirit is that he wants to fill you with more stuff. He wants to transform you, to grow you, to mature you. He wants to change you. To know how you relate to others. Striking, isn't it? Because Paul's writing to a church, and when you ask somebody, is your church spirit-filled? Or if somebody asks you that about Magdalen Road, what kind of things are they after? 
What's the evidence that they want? More often than not, our knee-jerk thinking is being spirit-filled equates to how we worship, we sing. Or perhaps more the sort of miraculous, exciting things, the prophecy, tongues, healing type stuff. What does Paul say here? To be spirit-filled as a church, there are four things from verses 19 to 21. Literally, it's speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. It's singing and making music from your heart to the Lord. It's always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then 21, it's submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Are we a spirit-filled church? What about those four things? They sound pretty mundane, pretty everyday, pretty non-miraculous. Although, to be fair, to transform someone from being completely selfish and me-centred to being God-centred, others-centred, it's a fair old miracle. And remember, the Spirit unifies diverse people as one. One building, one temple. And so why does a Spirit-filled church need these four things? Well, I think it's because God is wanting to promote unity to keep reconciliation, to maintain peace. If as a church we're speaking to each other, encouraging truths, if we're singing together to the Lord, if we're corporately giving thanks to God for his blessings, if we're submitting to one another, that keeps us as one. That's the beautiful gospel on display. Just briefly, have a think about each of them. We'll put speaking and Uh, singing together in verse 19. But we're to be a people of music and song. A place of rejoicing. We're to speak to each other and we're to sing joyfully to the Lord. Speaking horizontally and then singing vertically. We're going to sing in a bit. I want you to remember as we sing, to remember both elements, that we're praising God But you know, it's not just about you and God. Actually, it's everyone else as well. You're encouraging one another as you sing. You're spurring one another on. We're a family of reconciled people together, praising God. And so let me urge you to use your words for good. Why not be intentional as you leave this place or as you come to church week by week, thinking, how can I encourage people? How can I build them up? Lord, fill me with your spirit so that I might do that. That I might build others up. Perhaps it's as you have coffee later. Who can you chat to? How can you spur them on? Perhaps it's through this week. Who could you just drop a text to or meet up with? How can you encourage one another? Notice too, it's singing joyfully from our hearts to the Lord. Take it, we can't fake that. So let's ask that God would transform our hearts so that we might be a people of thankfulness who recognise all that we have. Verse 20. Striking, I've been thinking recently that there is a place for lament in the Christian life. Of course there is. It's the reality of living this side of the cross and this side of Jesus coming back. 
But we have so much to give thanks for. How easy it is to, to whinge to God the whole time at worst, to focus in on the negatives and our lot in life. Or at best, just to sort of shortcut our way through to the stuff that we want or we need. Forgetting the good things he's given us. Forgetting his kindness to us. Maybe this week, why not spend time in Ephesians 1, 1 to 14, just reading a little bit day by day and giving thanks to God for his kindness. That the foundations of this letter, the Trinitarian God who is working out his plan in all of history. Perhaps thanking God for what he's done in your life, in the life of this church. We're thriving in many ways at Magdalen Road. So thankfulness is a mark of the spirit-filled church. Pray that the Lord would make us thankful people, recognising all that he gives us. And then finally, submitting in verse 21. More on this next week, because you'll know it flows into the next section. But wouldn't it be amazing if we were a church where we just couldn't stop submitting to one another? Wouldn't that be awesome? No one living in isolation, but we're constantly looking to the needs of others. Beautiful, extraordinary community. Nobody has an ego. Nobody has an agenda to push. Nobody wants to build their kingdom. Everybody wants to be forgotten because they're serving others. Those people who want a longer service, well, actually they want a shorter one because they recognise that for the kids and the kids' leaders struggling with longer services... Those people who prefer one Bible translation, well, they say, I'm going to use their translation because that's what they want. Those people who find home group really difficult, they go because they know others find it so encouraging. They want to serve and to submit. Those people who love singing hymns, they say, well, do you know, I'd like more choruses because I know there are many chorus lovers out there. Those women who would rather not head to G&Ds on a Monday night do so because they know others appreciate it. They know how important it is. Imagine a spirit-filled church where submission to one another is rife. It spreads like a plague, epidemic. Everyone is infected. We, we, We can't help but submit to one another, to love one another, to live a life of love. We can't help but put somebody else's needs before our own. Wouldn't that shout the message of the gospel to the world? To see how we've been transformed. So verses 1 and 2. This is Jesus' example worked out in this passage. 1 to 7, his other-centred love rather than selfishly serving his own needs. Verse 8 to 16, his distinctive light-filled living, not being overcome by the darkness. And 17 to 21, he submitted and encouraged and was thankful for God's kindness. Let's pray that he would help us to live a life of love.